Father, I want to thank you for the preaching of your word. I want to thank you, Lord, that your word has power in and of itself. I want to thank you, Lord, that your word washes us, cleanses us, points us towards Jesus. I want to thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have promised that you would lead us into all truth. And I pray, Lord, this morning that the preaching of your word would lead us into all truth. And God, we want to know more of you. Jesus, we long to know more of you. Jesus, we want to become more and more like you. And we ask that you would transform us. We ask that you would lead us and guide us. That we would become more and more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Uh, Am I winning here? Okay, I'm just going to carry on then. Just uh, some things I forgot to say during the announcements. Um, Next week, we will have Chris Lane with us from the Vineyard, and he's, going to be come, he's coming to preach. I preached there a couple of weeks ago, and he's going to be preaching here next week, which is wonderful for us to continue building friendship with, with that church. And so I want to encourage you to be here next week, bring your friends, bring your family, and let's hear what God is doing with them. And I'm sure he's going to bring something which is wonderful and help us build here at this church. We're talking about the shape of the future. We're talking about... Uh, what God is doing. And uh, last week, for those of you that weren't here, I uh, shared something of what I've been reading and feeling as we are talking about being a gospel-centered community, as we're talking about being believers in a postmodern culture, what that might mean, what that might imply for us as we try and reach out into the community in a meaningful way that's going to bring life. And uh, I just want to as I begin this morning, just remind you of some of the key points that I raised last week, and then out of that, go forward. I talked about five things that Ravi Zacharias, who's a Christian apologist, says are uh, indicative of a postmodern mindset. The first thing he said was that philosophy moves towards existentialism. He said that artistic, the artistic um, movement moves towards sensuality. Is it all right now? Okay. Ah, there we go. Ta-da. Thank you, guys. He said that religion moves towards what is mystical. He said education moves towards what is skeptical. And lastly, he said that society moves from what is corporate to what is individual, and that the individual becomes the, the judge of all morality, of everything for themselves. And so he said those are those five key movements in thinking that we've experienced in the last century. And the challenge that we have to face, and which this is what I said last week, is how do you communicate to a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? How do we communicate the gospel into that context? And so... There were three things that I raised out of that. And the most exciting for me was the third point that I talked about, was that in a postmodern culture, postmodern context, what people long for is relationship and community. And perhaps the greatest apologetic that we're going to have for this generation is a believing community of believers that love each other, that are committed to each other, that are out of covenant and relationship can impact the community. And I said we don't have to change the gospel. We have to present the gospel in a relevant way, taking into context 
the culture in which we live, but not, not diminishing the gospel, not watering it down, not changing it in any way, but allowing the cross of Christ to speak into a postmodern worldview. And I have no doubt that God is doing amazing things. I have, I have no doubt that the world is changing radically before our eyes. I have no doubt that God is releasing and restoring some key things to us at, the moment, at, at, at this present time. I have no doubt that there is an emphasis on the prophetic. There is an emphasis on signs and wonders and healings. I think it's no wonder that people like Bill Johnson are having an impact into the community. I celebrate that. I rejoice in that. God is restoring things. He's restoring things to the church. And we, and we, want, to, we want to build with what God is doing and at the same time, we want to enjoy the community of believers that God has planted us into at this point in time. And for me, that is the tension. That is the tension. We cannot, in a postmodern worldview, we cannot just simply say, this is my thing, my revelation, what God has spoken to me, and we work it out all on our own, in our little way, and all the arrows that should be flying in formation are scattered into this kind of nebulous, cyberspace kind of world. I believe that the Bible speaks about biblical community, which is more than a, a lot, whole lot of in, individuals doing their own thing. It's a biblical community of believers that love each other, that are committed to each other, and out of that, they work out their calling, and it impacts the community, and it impacts the nation, and we are changed as we do that. Amen. And so I want to speak to you out of that about the shape of the future for this church. I've already, I've already mentioned some things last week in terms of how we are looking at revamping something of our leadership team, but I, I want to just um, say this. Os Guinness is a wonderful uh, writer, theologian. He says this, Without truth, there's only manipulation, nothing else. So without truth, there's no freedom. Freedom is not just freedom from repression, it is also freedom for. It's freedom for. Freedom is not permission to do what you like, but the power to do what you ought to do. Real freedom depends on knowing who you are. Chesterton said that you can free a tiger from its cage, but you can never free it from its stripes. You can free a camel from its pen, but you can never free it from its hump. So, once out of bondage, once Christ has set you free and you're out of bondage, you now need to know the truth of who you are. Without this, there's no freedom. Truth truly does set you free. Amen? And I rejoice in the grace of God. I rejoice that the grace of God sets us free. I rejoice in the blood of Christ. But God has set us free for something. And as we talk about personal wells, as we talk about what God has called you to, and discovering the calling that God has for your life, it's worked out in the context of a biblical community that love each other, that are committed to each other, and that want to see the kingdom come. Amen? So are you with me in John 10? Jesus says this, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, if you are reading from another version. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, 
That man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it, have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am a good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Just a couple of comments out of this portion before I get into what I, what I really want to share with you this morning. Jesus is the great shepherd. Amen? Jesus is the great shepherd. We are called as believers to point people towards Him in all things. He's the great shepherd. He's the one that we love, that we serve. He's the passion of our hearts. He's the great love affair that we have. And in all things, we point people towards Christ. All right? Secondly, out of this portion, for me quite clearly, the Scripture says there are clear, specific sheepfolds or communities that are defined and have a boundary. And that's how we have different churches. And I, I love the, the multiplicity of churches. I love the diversity of churches. Because it reflects something of the rainbow creativity of God, that we are not all the same, that there is diversity that we celebrate, that we don't see everything all exactly the same way. And for me, that's the beauty of local church, that there can be an expression of the heart of God in a community that's so different from place to place. And if you go to this church, it will be slightly different from city church down the road, and it will be slightly different from um, the Anglican church up the road. And it will be different to the churches that meet on the university. Why? Because there's this expression of God that God is doing here with us that is unique. And we celebrate that. It's a wonderful thing. It's the diversity of God. That there are multiple sheepfolds that He is building. Amen? Elders are called to be shepherds. And they are those that shepherd God's sheep. They open the door for the sheep to come in, for the sheep to go out. They open the door for God's blessing. And hopefully... They close the door on intruders that want to snatch the sheep. I always love to tell the story that when we first started, a couple of, um, I think in our second or third year, we had this young lady in our church, and 
she was being pursued by this young man who wasn't good for her. And so I felt one day I was just preaching. I was preaching out of this portion, and I just said, you know, if the wolf comes, I said, we have beautiful women in this church. They, they are wonderful women in this church. But, you know, if you're a wolf, we have got a stick. And as shepherds, we're going to whack you. <laughs> well, the guy never came back. And that woman is now married. She's got three children. She's delightfully happy. I think that's good. I think that's part of protecting the sheep. It's not control. It's actually saying, well, we love you and we want the best for you. So if the wolf is there, we're going to whack the wolf. Part of what God has. Also out of this portion it says, those that climb over by another way, that don't enter through the gate, that don't leave through the gate, they are thieves and robbers. And they come to rob and kill and destroy the sheep of the sheepfold. The sheep know the voice of the shepherds, and a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired hand comes and flees and doesn't care for the sheep when the wolf comes. And so the role of elders is there for protection of the sheep, the good of the pasture, and that the sheep find protection in the community that God has planted them. That's the role of eldership. And I'd like to speak a little bit about that this morning. As we go forward into the future, as things change, because I think it's vital that we understand, and there's many new people coming into this church, which I find an absolute delight. It's wonderful. It's thrilling. I'm so thrilled when I don't know everybody. It's a great thing. Because God is adding. People are being saved. He's building his community. It's a delight to be part of that. It really is. And so I just want to say, if I haven't had opportunity to say hello to you and you're new, it's a delight to have you, all right? It really is. And we welcome you with open hearts. I just have a look this morning at the whole thing of how elders function. And as we move into the future, how we see God redefining some of the things that we are doing. So this is a little bit more of a teaching session this morning than it is a preaching session, and I trust that you'll hear the heart of what I want to speak through. So in the New Testament, there are three Greek words that are used for the people that we call pastors or elders of local churches, shepherds. This is still ringing. Andrew, can you help me? Thank you. These three words are presbyteros, pomeno, and episkopos. Okay? Presbyteros, poimen, and episkopos. They are used interchangeably, and we're going to read some scripture together. And they describe essentially the same person. And they describe functions of that person. Presbyteros, it's getting worse, but it's not getting better. Can you help me? Thank you. Presbyteros is the word that we get, uh, is the root word of Presbyterian. Anyone familiar with the Presbyterian church, right? That, the root word for that is presbyteros. And that's the Greek word that's normally translated as an elder. So when you read in the New Testament, you read to the elders in Ephesus, the word there is presbyteros. Okay? Secondly, poimen, that is the word that is used for shepherd or pasture. So when you read shepherd, elder, it's poimen. That's the root word. And if we read Ephesians 4.11, which we'll do just now, that word translated pastor could also be translated shepherd. All right? So it's used interchangeably. And then episkopos. You've heard of the Episcopal Church. Well, the root word there, episkopos, is often used for churches that have episcopal systems of government. In other words, it's hierarchical. And the Greek word here is made up of two. 
epi, which means over, and skopos, which means seer. So that's where the, you get the word overseer, all right? Episkopos. And uh, it's translated in the New Testament as bishop, often. All right? And in church systems where there's been a hierarchical framework, there is a sense of hierarchy that the higher you go up the hierarchy, you have a different title. And what I'm driving at here is in the New Testament, those three words are used interchangeably for the same person. They are not used to denote hierarchy. Are you with me? So let's just read for, if you can go to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. We're going to read a couple of verses there. Uh, Paul writes... And he says, uh, sorry, this is Luke writing Acts. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says this, Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay? Overseers. Episcopos, to care for the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock. And from your own, among your own selves, men will rise up and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So here Paul is saying goodbye to the elders in plural, so more than one elder. He's saying goodbye to the guys from Ephesus. And he's giving them final instructions and he uses those three words that I've mentioned, he uses them to address the same group of people. He's not addressing three different groups. He's addressing the same group of people and said, the Holy Spirit has set you apart to be elders, shepherds, bishops. And the words are all used interchangeably. So God says, if you're an elder, like I'm in this church, you're also a bishop and you're also a shepherd. And so we don't call people by titles in this church. We call them by their names, even though we have a function to do. So I'm not, I don't like to be called Pastor Ant, and nor does Paul like to be called Pastor Paul or any one of the other guys, or Bishop. You could call us Bishop, but we wouldn't like that because it denotes something of hierarchy. And we believe that there's just a function that we fulfill in this church that is no better or hierarchically different. We are all saved. We come to the cross in the same way. We are all saved and washed by the blood of Jesus. We are all priests. But in the church, God has called some to an office to help administrate the church of God. That's how we see it. Are you with me? Okay. Thank you, Glenn. I'm glad you are. And so when you, when you interpret these things hierarchically, what begins to happen in the church is that pastors or shepherds occupy a lower rung on the hierarchy than bishops or archbishops, or whatever. And there's this hierarchical system that begins to develop, which is not a biblical one. And so we want to say, as we go move forward into the future, we want to administer the life of the church with the revelation that we have in God, and as He gives us greater revelation and greater understanding, we can adjust and change. But on these things, we feel like God is, the Scripture is clear. That's how a church needs to be governed, all right? If we look at the following context, can you go to Titus chapter 1, please, verse 5? And what happens here, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we're going to read two verses. Paul instructs Titus, he says to Titus, to ordain elders, and he gives guidelines for the kind of people that are to be chosen. And at this point, he calls them 
overseers, which is translated bishops, which is the function of the office that they are to have. And he says this, I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward, love the wording here, God's steward. We are stewards of the kingdom. It's God's church. It's not our church. We don't hold it. As overseers, they must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, must not be quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good. He must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a rich portion, isn't it? And so here Paul says, these are the kind of men that you are to appoint as elders in a church to look after the sheep, to protect the sheep. They mustn't be drunkards. They mustn't be violent and greedy. And these are all character qualifications of what God expects for us. Can I just say this? That I believe in anointing. I believe in gifting. I believe that God sovereignly gives gifts to men. And we read in, in Ephesians, he doesn't, He's not fair. God is not fair. God is not equal. He gives, he gives sometimes more gifting to one person than he does to another. And that's his choice. It's a sovereign gift that he just deposits. He says, this is my grace gift to you. Woof, I give this to you. That's, the scripture also says that gifting is without repentance. He doesn't take it back. He gives it. I want to say that my conviction, my theology is this, that our characters either enable us to carry the anointing that God gives or our lack of character in the end will undo us and our anointing will be lost. And that's, people, people often come and ask and say, but what, how come, how come that guy who's been doing such amazing things, how come he falls? How come that amazing evangelist, he runs off with his secretary? Or how come that guy runs away with all the money. How is that possible? Well, this is how it's possible. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance, but the character issues that we have to develop in our lives are our problem. Alright? And I don't believe that God ever short-circuits that process in your life. He doesn't. Or in my life. He led Moses into the desert where Moses was for 40 years. He went into the desert as a 40-year-old and he came out of the desert as an 80-year-old. Why? Because God had to do some stuff in his life. And when Moses was ready, what happened? He led the people out of Egypt into the new thing that God was doing. But his character was there to underpin what God had called him to do. Are you with me? The same as Joseph. Joseph has this amazing dream that he says one day, he has this dream and he dreams all his brothers are are kneeling before him and he's the ruler, he's the king. And he goes to his brothers with that dream and what happens to him? As a young man of 17 or 18, he gets thrown down the well. He gets thrown down the well. And it takes a whole process of his life to walk through what God is doing. Why? Because he needs the character to 
hold the calling that God has for him. And eventually, we know the story, that actually he is the one who actually at the, in, in Egypt is the savior of all his brothers. But it doesn't happen like he thinks. It doesn't happen in his time. It happens in God's time and in a very unusual way that he gets there. You know, this is, uh, I say this with tenderness. Someone said this to me the other day, a wise man. He said this. He says, we preach so often on Joseph. We preach so often on Moses, we preach so often on, on David and the mighty men of God that you know what starts to happen? Everyone in our congregation seems to, starts to think that they are Moses and they are David and they are all these guys. And actually, most of us, and I include myself in this, most of us, we are just part of the army. We're part of the 3,000. We're part of the 10,000. But we like to see ourselves as in a certain way, don't we? We like to see ourselves as the great deliverers. And God uses men. I believe that. God uses men and women to underpin what he's doing. But let at all times our hearts be soft and humble and not see ourselves more highly than we ought, all right? We're just part of the God's army. And he uses us as he wants. So Peter says the same thing uh, that Paul says in Titus. If you read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, he calls Jesus the great shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? Poimain the great shepherd of our souls, and the overseer, he uses that word again, episkopos of our souls. Jesus, the great shepherd, the great overseer of our souls. And if you read 1 Peter chapter 5, the first verse, Peter writes this, I exhort the elders amongst you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The heart of Peter, he says to, he's talking to me and Paul and, and uh, the deacons here as well, in a in sense, those that have been given government. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you're forced to, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, submit yourself to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards each other. Man, that's powerful. He's saying, elders, don't lord it over the people. Saying, young, young men, young women, submit yourselves willingly to the elders, but with humility, both of you, humility, both of you, humility for one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen? God gives grace to those that are humble. So Peter writes to the elders, presbyteros, as a fellow elder, and he exhorts, exhorts them to be shepherds, poimain, pastors, and to serve as overseers, episcopos, and once again these three words are used interchangeably. Perhaps I've taken too long to emphasize my point, but you hear what I'm saying. This is not a hierarchical thing. This is not a business model. This is the church. It's a family of God. And just as there's a, a dad in a family, there are elders and there are deacons and there are saints, and together we are the church, this wonderful community that God has for us to enjoy. So what do elders do? And again, I can't say in one Sunday all of what I want to say, and there are many things that 
elders do. But reading some of those portions of Scripture, you should get an idea of what a function of an elder is. But can I just say, first of all, that elders spend time with people. (laughs) Elders spend time with people. God is looking for leaders that will spend time with people and not hurry away when it's inconvenient for them. I've so enjoyed being part of the church community again in the last six months in a way that I haven't been able to in the past. Just meeting guys for lunch, hanging out for coffee. Uh, I've said to the other guys on the team with us, go and meet the guys for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Meet with them at university. Do whatever you can to connect with the people in the church. That's what we're called to do. I can't think of any more delightful job than getting paid for having coffee with people. Isn't that a delight? That's what I do. I get paid for having dinner with people. That's a cool thing. Well, there's some other things I have to do as well, but you know what I'm saying? Isn't that exciting? I love it. Someone said to me once, you need to be able to smell the sheep on a shepherd. I mean, a good shepherd ruffles their hair and rubs them. And Have you seen that amazing uh, advert where the guy suspects Savers advert? Have you seen that advert? It's a great advert. That's not the kind of shepherd we're talking about here, right? It doesn't know the sheep. The poor sheepdog gets shorn. Shepherds need to touch the people. And I, my friends, I want to just say to you, when I phone or when one of the other elders phones, please, please don't think it's because you've done something wrong. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're about, right? We just want to say hello. We just want to hang with you. We want to have coffee. Why does everyone always think that the elders, not everyone, always, I never shouldn't use that language, but people sometimes have a default setting, perhaps because of their pain in their past, that when you get a phone call, it's because you've done something wrong. No. <laughs> It's because we want to hang out. That's the only reason. Hmm. See, it's not just about praying. It's not just about teaching. It's about our hearts being connected and ensuring that people feel loved. And for me, that is what's going to be a testimony to this community is hearts that are connected relationally and covenantally. Have we always done that 100% right? No. We are fallible human beings. We make mistakes. And I trust that as we've made mistakes and been vulnerable about that, that you would give us also, extend grace to us as God extends grace to us. Amen? And we've got, to, we've got to find a new way as we go forward. As we truly love people, God will begin to transform the church. And I, I, for me as a leader, I want to say the issue of loving people is really where the, where the, the, the rubber hits the road, isn't it? If we can say all we like, we can smile all we like, we can do whatever we want, but actually what we do betrays something in our hearts. And if it's not in the heart, we can say with our mouth, but if we're not doing it, it's not a living. And I don't say it in a condemning way. I'm, so, I'm speaking to myself. All right? Elders spend, spend time with people. Secondly, elders rule. And others, for me already, just using that word can be like, oh, rule? What does that mean? Well, let me, let me help you understand, I hope, biblically. And let's see what it means, publicly, because it, that has got very little to do with a worldly concept of rulership when we look biblically. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, for example, please go there. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It's uh, the New King James Version. says, those who rule, it uses that word well, uh, it uses that word, those who rule well. In the UN, NIV Version, it says, 
those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. And the task of ruling or oversight is the domain of elders. Uh, we are responsible for doctrine, to make sure we believe right. The elders are responsible for direction. Where's the church going? And when, when there's necessary for discipline to be exercised, elders are responsible for that as well. And no one likes that particularly. Uh, when you have to kind of speak into situations, I don't find that a comfortable thing, but it's part of being an elder. And the New Testament pattern is quite clear, uh, but unfortunately not all churches practice a New Testament pattern. And I, I, I feel that when there's a de- democratic model that's favored by many churches, when the congregation begins to administrate what happens in the life of the church, I think we allow heresy to grow in the church. And there's this tension between elders ruling and elders taking the church forward and setting direction and the sense of what we are going through right now and trying to empower every believer to live in their calling. There's a tension there. Because we have to, I believe every, every church needs an arrowhead. Every church needs a team at the front that is breaking open and saying, this is something of what God is doing for us. So you break open in prayer. You break open through the preaching of the word. You break open in relationship. You break open for the people and the people come behind. I believe that's the biblical mandate. That's what we're called to do. Amen? So let's look um, at this thing of ruling. And uh, again, I want to give you three words that are Greek words. Prostemai, hegiomai, and poimeno. Well, can I just spell them for you? Prostemai. P-R-O-I-S-T-E-M-I. Prostemai. Hegiomai. H-E-G-E-O-M-I-A. And poimeno, which we've already referenced. P-O-I-M-A-I-N-O. And I'm just going to give you some scripture references and, and maybe you can go and have a look in your own time at these scriptures. But let's look at prostemai first of all. Uh, there are three senses in which this word is used in the scripture. If you look at scriptures like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, please write that down and have a look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. And uh, for example, Romans 12, verse 8. I delight in this picture because the first sense of this thing of rulership is a picture of someone standing in front of others or going ahead of them in a leadership capacity. And that's the most obvious sense of the word. We go ahead of. Secondly, it's used in the same way as a father leads a family. All right? Prostemai. Father leading a family. And then the third sense is in someone who is over us in the Lord. And I want to have a look at that in particular. But in the first sense of the word of, of us going ahead, the elders going ahead of, I have a, a friend who is a, a pilot, not a pilot as in an airplane pilot. He is a, in fact, he's the chief pilot that navigates the, the boats in and out of Liverpool Dock. His name is Vince. He's a wonderful guy. He's an elder in a church. But what he does is he pilots all these tankers in and out of Liverpool, the harbor. And what he has to do and requires to do is he studies the sandbanks, he studies the, the currents that come in and out, and he has to regularly renegotiate those things because of the currents that change the sandbanks in the, in, the, in the harbor mouth. And he's the guy that is responsible for taking the tankers that are out there. Uh, what do you do? You don't park a ship. What do you do? I don't know. Well, they, you do. Sorry, you moor a ship. They are moored out in the ocean, and then he goes on a little pilot boat, and he gets on board, and he comes and he 
brings the boat into the harbor, and his responsibility is to navigate all the obstacles so that the boat can come into the harbor and find rest. I think that is a delightful way of looking at eldership. You stand ahead of the people. You pilot people through the obstacles of their lives, and hopefully with wisdom and with grace that God gives, we say, be careful for that thing there. Not I'm telling you, but be careful. Be careful for that rock. I would avoid that if I was you. That's piloting. That's helping people to pilot through their lives. That's a delightful responsibility. That's the first sense. We stand ahead, elders should stand ahead of. Secondly, they should do that with the heart of a father. Okay? And when we administer things in the church well, it would be, should be how a good father runs his family. That should immediately make it clear to us that it's not a sense of rulership as the world sees rulership, but I would add much of the church is run like that. Many think of ruling as a kingly or a dictatorial style of leadership. And I want to say this again. Leadership in a family is never dictatorial. It doesn't insist on having its, all, having its way all the time in all things. It allows others to have a say. This applies to, re, to ruling in a church. It's a family word, and when we use it as a family word, we should always have that in mind when we speak of the church. There's a difference. Can I say this? There's a difference between strong, anointed leadership and domineering, controlling leadership. There is a difference. The first makes people secure and confident because they know that they'll be protected even when they are challenged, and if they are challenged, it's for their well-being. Whereas the second, that second style of domineering leadership reveals a threatened and defensive heart in the leader, and it doesn't make people feel insecure. In fact, uh, feel secure. In fact, it makes them feel insecure. And we can read that in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. So when we talk about instilling these values into us as a family, we don't do that as dictators. And I, my heart is that we would teach patiently and help others to grasp the importance of what we value as a church because we want all to embrace this system freely. We don't force people into this. We say, no, no, this needs to be your heart. And that needs to be true of church leadership. I want to say this, that good fathers are not primarily concerned about how it reflects on them when, ch when their children do things wrong. And I've learned that as a dad in my boys. If I'm more concerned about how it makes me look as a father and how I discipline my children, that's the wrong thing. But actually, I discipline my kids for their good and for their future and for their destiny, not on how it makes me look. And I've had to also as my kids have started getting a little bit older, the way I discipline Jesse is not the same as I discipline Matthew. Matthew is now 12, going on 13. He's beginning to think of a whole lot of things in a different way from his brother. And as we grow up in Christ, as we don't discipline new believers in the same way that we discipline guys who have been working with God, walking with God for many, many years. Are you with me? And when I use that word discipline, I'm not meaning beating, I mean, uh, Hebrews says this. Hebrews says it's a sign of your sonship that God would discipline you. Say, my son, that's not good for you. Please change this. Please change that. Holy Spirit directed. Are you with me? A good father is concerned with how his children will grow up more than how it reflects on him. 
I want to say this as we go into this new era that God has for us as this church, and I am so excited about what God is doing. More than ever before, we need godly leaders in the church. I trust you would agree with that. Uh, And eldership does involve going ahead of and showing something of the future. And as this church has gone through a season of sifting and dealing with our hearts over the last couple of years, it could be a time where we get introspective as leaders and we get locked into a sense of how we've been lacking. But I want to say to you, that I believe as an eldership team where God has challenged us personally, we have responded with a sense of desperation in our lives and wanting the best that God has for us. Desperation for His presence. Desperation for what He has for us. And I want to encourage you that as we go forward, we are encouraged by the Lord to keep watch of our own lives, of our own doctrine, that we might keep the church in a place of wholeness, freedom, and a deepening love for each other. That's my commitment. That's our commitment as an eldership team, is to love you, and as we love God faithfully, that He will lead us into all truth. Amen. So I rejoice for the last eight years. I think what has brought us to this place is, is wonderful. But now let's move into what God has for the future, all of us. Let's go look now at that third sense of the word, prostema, how it's used. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, It says uh, in verse 12, it's used in that sense of elders being over us in the Lord. And again, can I just say this is not hierarchical? As Peter makes clear in in 1 chapter 5, uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. But here it's overseers are to serve the sheep. That people are not there for leaders, but leaders are there for the people. I mean, that might sound obvious, but there's a real sense that I need to say that. The church is not there for apostolic ministry, but the gifts are raised up. For the sake of the church. And that's something also of the transition that we're going through as a church. And I think it's that God is grieved when he sees leaders profiting at the expense of the people. That's not the heart that God has. The leaders are there for the people to see them prosper. And what is conveyed in this passage is in the sense of being under the protection of elders. In the same way way that you might have a shield over you or armor over you. And I love that image. Overseer. Not hierarchically overseer, but over me. Protecting. Yeah? Like an umbrella shields you from the rain. Biblical leadership should be a shield over your life. Should help to stop the evil one having impact. That's what it should be. And if there are holes in the umbrella, if there are holes in the armor, they are due to lack of character issues. And that's why... The New Testament spends so much time speaking about leaders being men and women of character. Why? So there are no holes in the armor. Because if there are holes in the armor and you are over the people, protecting the people, the devil will get right into the chink of the armor. Are you with me? And again, I'm not saying leaders are perfect at all. I'm not saying that at all. But there is a sense that we have to have some basic things. We must love our wives, not be drunken people, uh, be able to control our children, all that stuff, those things that we read. Are you with me? Yes? yes? Good. Okay. Let's look at the second word then. We've looked at prostema, hegeomai. And I love this picture as well. The first picture, remember, we talked about a, a, a pilot of a ship going ahead of. And I love this picture as well. It's a similar picture, but here there's a picture of an oriental shepherd going ahead of the flock. 
Now, I come from Africa, and in Africa, the shepherds do not go ahead of the sheep. They stand behind the sheep with a stick. And they throw stones at the cattle to get them to go where they need to go. An oriental shepherd, Middle Eastern shepherd, goes ahead of his flock, and because he, they know his voice, he walks ahead and they follow him. Now, that's a profound little picture there. The oriental shepherd goes ahead. And that's particularly interesting to me because out of the portion we read out of John 10, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. They listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's no sense of driving the sheep. And I, for me, that's the great challenge. That we have to lead from a place of going ahead of that people can follow as they learn and hear the voice of the elders. So elders are called to walk before the sheep. Hopefully the sheep know that they're committed to them and they're willing to lay down the lives before them and really that we have their interests truly at heart. And interesting, this, this word here um, is, is the same sense of a general leading an army. Now, I, I had the misfortune of going to the army. I wouldn't wish anyone to go to the army, but anyway, I did go to the army. But um, it's very interesting to me that when I was in the army, I learned this. The people that shout the most and make the biggest noise in the army are generally corporals. Corporals have very little authority. They like to think they've got a lot, but they've got very little. I never saw a four-star general raise his voice, ever. He didn't have to. Why? Because he just knew that he had the authority, and when he spoke, it would be done. See, there's a difference between real authority that comes from God and having to shout to get your way. We don't, we don't want a church full of corporals that are shouting each other, we want some generals to rise in the church. They can speak because they have genuine authority. Are, are you with me? Yeah. I love that picture. I'm asking God for my own life. Lord, help me be a secure leader that I can be someone who takes people forward into their destiny and they can fight effectively in the battle that God has for them. The third uh, word we want to look at, and I'm closing with this, is poimeno, which we have already referenced. Can I just say this to you guys also as, as we look at this? You know, this, I, for me as leading the church right now, I, I'm called to be the stock preacher, right? So the stock preacher is this, is the guy that does all this kind of stuff. And sometimes we want the zhuzhi stuff, isn't it? We want the deliverance, we want the signs and wonders, we want, and that's great. And I, I rejoice, I want that also. But someone has to do the stock stuff. Someone has to do the teaching. You know, I get frustrated when people say, I've got a, I've got a ministry in deliverance, and I, I want to pray for people to set, set me from... You, ju you just sort out the people's marriages, you know, teach them to be faithful with their finances. You do all that stuff. I, I want to do all the spiritual stuff. I don't think there's anything more spiritual than teaching someone to be a good husband or teaching someone to be a faithful father. Or teaching someone to live debt-free. My friends, I was just speaking to someone this morning, and I don't say, don't say this in a condemning way, but for eight years, we've tried to encourage people to live debt-free. And now is the time where all of us are saying, oh God, if I only had lived debt-free, the credit crunch wouldn't be such an impact on my life. Are you with me? 
And it's not always comfortable to be the one saying to the guys, let me help out your finances. Come, let me help you to budget. You hear what I'm saying? That is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is teaching people to tear down every power and principality that exalts itself above the name of Jesus. That includes the way you see your finances. That includes your parenting. That includes all that other stuff. And on top of that, we pray for the sick and they are healed. And we rejoice. I was so thrilled to hear James's testimony and Deanna's testimony of God's provision. But it's both and. And as the stock preacher, I'm going to carry on preaching what God has for me to preach and the other guys can come in and do all the juicy stuff. And that's okay. That's how the church is going to grow. We're going to get strong in all areas of our ministry and our lives. The third word for ruling is poimeno. And that's found in, in our references. If you want to read these, please. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 and verse 24. And that word poimeno is used there. But the difference here is that it has to do with discipline. And that's the hard aspect of, of being a, a ruler in the church. And I have quoted this before, but there's a guy called Philip Keller who grew up as a shepherd and he later became a pastor. And he's written a book about shepherding. And he says... There are occasions that shepherds might have to break a leg of a sheep that constantly, constantly strays away and takes other sheep along with it. And that's the difficult part of ruling. Sometimes you have to speak a word into someone's life, which ultimately, long term, is going to help them, but it's painful in the moment. But in all discipline in the church, I, I believe if good shepherds are like fathers, they are gentle, they are caring, and they're motivated by love. And discipline lets our children know, for example, that they can't always get away with things that are not right. Amen? We need to show them that we mean business, not for our sake, but for their sake. And for me, this is what I always, I'm saying to God, help me in terms of my own life as I minister, is God, what is good for the sheep? What is good for this marriage? What is good for this couple that are struggling with parenting? And help me, if, it, if I need to say something that might seem difficult for them right now, help me to deliver it in such a way that it's going to bear fruit in their life in the long run. Because ultimately, it's not about what we see right now. It's about fruitfulness as we live our lives. And we go to eternity. And I hope all of us are going to go to eternity carrying much fruit. That's what Jesus said. He said, I have come that you might have life in its abundance. But he also says that we would bear fruit that will last. And I'm so thrilled every time I, I hear of the girls doing stuff at the building blocks and 50, 60 ladies going there and they are helping, most of them unsaved, they are helping them with, their, with their, how to raise your kids. I think, man, that's spiritual warfare. That's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You are tearing down principalities and powers in people's homes as you teach them to minister to their children effectively. That's a wonderful thing. Let's celebrate that. Our basic motivation must be love for each other. And that, can, that means at the same time that we can't, we can't always be Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> and you know, as I looked at Jesus and his life, there are many words that you could use to describe Jesus, but nice is not one of them. Beige is nice. Maybe I should say beige is nice. Okay. <laughs> beige is nice. Jesus, Jesus wasn't beige. He was radically, radically different. Many mistake niceness as a fruit of the Spirit. 
It's not a fruit of the Spirit being nice. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. I said that a number of weeks ago, that if your main concern is to be nice so that people like you, that's not evidence of fruit of the Spirit in your life. Self-control, patience, kindness, those are all fruit of the Spirit. Nice is not one of them. Nice is something that you are naturally. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Some people are nicer than others. That is true. But that's just because of their character. It's got nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit being birthed in them. You with me? I know I've rambled a bit this morning, but I trust that something is coming through as I've ministered. What the, di- what the Bible doesn't speak about niceness. It speaks about kindness. And even when we bring hard truths to people, they should still feel the kindness of God towards them. If we're only concerned with being nice, we will never try to confront issues in people's lives and never say what really, really needs to be said. I have a friend who runs a church and uh, they were trying to minister into uh, people's marriages and um, they read this book. They split the home groups into guys and girls. And for five weeks they read this book together and the girls ministered and the guys ministered. And I want to say to you guys in, in, in this church, I believe one of the primary battlegrounds for men is the area of sexual purity. And um, what was shocking for my mate was that this book said, out of the, any group of 10 men, any group of 10 men, one man is addicted to pornography. Out of 10, the second person has nothing to do with pornography. There's a sense of total um, victory in their life. And the other eight have in some way dabbled with it in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, as a pastor, that was, that was hard to hear. And for me, as we go forward, guys, I, wanted, I just want to give this challenge to you this morning. And, and for me, this is a hard thing to say, but I trust you here that it comes with love. We have to, as a church, come to a place of sexual purity in our lives and our marriages. And if you, if you need to do some business with your, with your wife, and speak through some things. And I trust that you would repent and you would come and ask for prayer if you need prayer, that this church would be a church that has healthy marriages because we are seeing the future that God has in mind for us. And I don't say that in a condemning way at all. You hear what I'm saying? I'm saying, God, if you, if you have a future for us that is beautiful and pure, and if you're coming back for a pure bride, let the first area that is pure in my life be my marriage and my relationship with my wife. Amen. Amen. So please hear my heart, guys. I'm not, I'm not beating anyone. I'm just saying, let's be honest. Let's be open. One, with our spouses. Two, making ourselves accountable with each other. See, that's my greatest bugbear at the moment, and I am closing because I've gone over. There's so much good stuff available on the internet. It's wonderful. It's so much good... Uh, things available, but you cannot be accountable to an internet preacher. You cannot be accountable with your life to someone in another nation that knows nothing about you whatsoever. You are accountable to real men and real women who know you, who know your relationship with each other, who know your children. You are accountable to them, and there's a mutual opening of your hearts, and you love each other. 
and help each other through. Are you with me? I, I think there are many, many great teachers and many great preachers who are far more gifted than I. And I, I'm comfortable with that. That's wonderful. But the sense of living in a biblical community is what God has called us to. And we learn from everybody, but we work it out where he's planted us. I trust that's helpful. I really trust that's helpful. And I really trust that as we go forward into the future that God has mined, that it's going to be a glorious future. It's going to be a wonderful future. And as things change and morph, as everything changes over time, that we know that the changes come because God has a future for us that he has in mind. Amen? God bless you.